The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Today, my responsibility is to bring to you a practical theme. I read a lot on this topic. Not a lot of this got into my lesson, but it got into my mind and heart. So I wanted to give credit to these scholars. Um, We're going to be looking at Genesis 39, just a small portion of the life of Joseph. And these men, if you want to study it further, have all written either an article or a sermon on this topic. Spurgeon, Calvin, Beakey, Flavel, Murray, and Piper. And I didn't know what to call today's topic. I, um, at first, I was going to do a lesson on purity because of Ben Carlson's uh, conference with the young people. And then I decided it was going to be on sexual purity. And I was looking at Amnar and, uh, Amnon and Tamar. And as I studied it more and more, I thought, let me, let me come at that subject from a, from, from a side door or a back door. So I moved over to, to Joseph, chapter 39, when he was sold into slavery. So we'll be considering his relationship with God and what enabled him to be so holy and so devoted to the Lord. And hopefully we can learn from him and apply some of the things that, that he experienced into our own life. You know, in our culture today, there's such a focus on sexual impurity. Everywhere you turn, you know, I saw that movie, The Sound of Freedom, and I thought, boy, what an what a epidemic in this world. How did it happen? What caused it? And you think of uh, the technology and the impact of technology upon our youth over the last 30 years and, and the fruit that it's now bearing all, all over the land and all over the world. And so as Christians, we need to be on guard and we need to, to look at the scriptures on how we can have a pure heart and be devoted to the Lord. Well, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day. Thank you for ordaining the Lord's Day for us that we might worship you and honor you and and get to know you better. We thank you for your goodness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, our salvation. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your grace. Father, we look forward to to today, to the preached word, to singing and praising your name, to reading your word, to fellowshipping with one another, and especially the Lord's Supper today and, and the opportunity that we have also to witness baptisms. We thank you for all these means of grace that we, that we can anticipate. We do pray that your Holy Spirit would come in a powerful way and help us, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth and help us to be more and more shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name, amen. Amen. Scripture tells us that the Lord was with Abraham, 
David and Hezekiah. We're also told that Enoch and Noah walked with God. These two phrases, the Lord was with and walked with God, are one and the same. Each one is the other side of the same coin. The Lord was with Joseph and walked with God are just two different angles on the same experience with God. The word of God is showing us God's special presence with his people. The third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, dwells with God's people. At first, man was separated from God, but God was gracious to promise his son to be our savior. We alienated ourselves from God by our sin, but God in his mercy came down to us to reconcile us to himself. God reversed the curse. He established our relationship with him. He initiated a connection. He recommunes with his people. He is in relationship with us. Because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the application of salvation by the Holy Spirit, God drew near to Old Testament believers. He drew near to Noah and Enoch, to Abraham, David, and Hezekiah. He drew them to himself and filled them with his own presence. Old Testament believers experienced the forgiveness of their sins. God's love was shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit given to them. The Lord, who had been against them, was now for them. By his grace, through the promised coming Christ and his indwelling Holy Spirit, God connected and communed with these men. Now, let's take a look at Joseph's relationship with God with an eye to see how we might have a deeper, more meaningful, experiential relationship with our gracious God. If you have your Bibles, please open to Genesis chapter 39. Now back in Genesis 37, two chapters earlier, we learn of Joseph's brothers selling him off to slave traders that were heading to Egypt. Remember, Jacob had asked Joseph to go check on his brothers who had taken their father's flock to graze near the town of Shechem. Joseph was to go and come back and give a report to Jacob of how they were doing with their father's flocks. When Joseph found them, not in Shechem, but in Dothan, northwest of Shechem, the brothers saw him coming from afar and they decided to kill him. They were still angry with the young dreamer who had dreamed of being in authority over them and even over the whole family. As he drew near to his brothers, Joseph was wearing his coat of many colors given to him by his father, who especially loved Joseph. But the plan to kill Joseph was changed. Thanks to Reuben and Judah, thanks to God's sovereign power, he was not killed. God had intervened using Reuben and Judah. Judah spoke up and he said this, This is back in chapter 37. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. 
Now, follow along as I pick up in chapter 39, verse 1, and I'm going to read all 23 verses of chapter 39. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had. He put under Joseph's authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he, had, that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master, excuse me, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There's no greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was as he spoke to Joseph day, excuse me, so it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them saying, see, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these. The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him saying, your servant did, did to me after this manner that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, 
the Lord made it to prosper. So I'd like us to consider three of these events that Joseph experienced. And first, we want to look that God was with Joseph in comforts of home to a nightmare of slavery. When Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, he was only 17 years old. He was far away from his home and in a perplexing and unexpected place. He was sold into slavery. Joseph was on the auction block like an animal for sale like an ox or like a horse and only 17 years old, equivalent to a junior in high school. It was his own brothers who hated him and betrayed him. Scholars surmise that he was probably almost naked on that auction block so buyers could get a good look at the merchandise that they were bidding on. Spurgeon tells us, bitter is the lot of a slave in any country and it was worse of all in those early days. We are told by Stephen in Luke's book of Acts that the patriarchs moved with envy sold Joseph into slavery. This seems to be the opposite of what Joseph had dreamed back in chapter 37, which caused his brothers to hate him even more. Joseph's dream was a metaphor or a picture showing his brothers that he, Joseph, was to rule and reign over them. Even Jacob scolded Joseph for a second dream. Joseph shared a second dream with Jacob and Rachel, saying to And then Jacob said to to Joseph, after he shared this dream, Jacob said this, Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Joseph sold into slavery seems to go against what God had told him would come to pass through those two dreams. What a dark providence for Joseph nearly killed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, and then sold into slavery as a 17-year-old. But the scripture tells us, but the Lord was with him. Even when he was being sold, the Lord was with Joseph. I'm sure Joseph's father, Jacob, had thought Joseph, had thought Joseph what God had told him, excuse me, I'm sure Joseph's father, Jacob, had thought, excuse me, had taught Joseph what God had told him back in Genesis 28. You remember what happened back in Genesis 28. It's reiterated in Hebrews 13, 5b to verse 6. We learn that God told Jacob this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, says the writer of, of Hebrews, the Lord is my helper I will not fear. What can man do to me? Joseph believed his earthly father and he also believed his heavenly father. The Lord was with him. From verses one and two of chapter 39 of Genesis, we read that Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph He was not purchased to be a field slave. The Lord was with Joseph. 
This was a kind providence that he did not end up in the field. A leader in Egypt, the man over Pharaoh's bodyguard, the captain of the guard, purchased Joseph. This was indeed a mercy of God. Even when in a dark providence, God is with us. Joel Beakey identifies seven scriptural ways the child of God should relate to our Heavenly Father in the midst of dark providences like the one Joseph is in in this passage in chapter 39. He says, first, we're to know that God's judgments are a great deep. From Romans 11 and Isaiah 55, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. His ways have a depth we cannot fully understand or fathom. He knows what he's doing. He's almighty God. Though we don't know and understand what he's doing, we're left with an element of mystery. We must trust our Heavenly Father in dark providences. Second, know that you are dust and sinful. You're not competent to judge what God is doing. You are finite and dependent. God is infinitely wise. We tend to look at everything by our earthly human perspective. God sees from eternity. God has a purpose. Believe his promises. Believe that his purposes are good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Peace, contentment, and comfort come as we trust God and we trust his word. But you might be thinking, how can that be? How can God be in control? I have a will, my neighbors have a will. We make choices, we do what we want. The Bible teaches us time and time again, God is in control. Though it was Roman soldiers and Jewish leaders that put Christ on the cross, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Third, Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. We say, why, O Lord? Why? And yet, we don't know the end that God has. We don't know the purposes that God has. In John 13, 7, when Peter tried to keep Jesus from washing his feet, Jesus said this to Peter, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. When we try to figure out why God is doing something, it's like judging an artist's work at the beginning of his efforts. Don't try to figure it out. Trust your gracious heavenly Father. Fourth, there will always be crosses in our lives. Our Lord and Savior suffered and will suffer as well. We live in a fallen world. That is just the way life is and God works in and through all things, especially suffering and trials. He is good and he is righteous. We are sinful and we're weak and yet God works all things, our sins, his goodness, Satan's schemes, others, other people's choices. He works all things. He is sovereign, ruling and reigning 
everything for his glory and for our good. We must believe his word, which is sufficient and authoritative. Consider David and Bathsheba's infant son when it dies. You remember that David stopped weeping and he began to eat. He believed he would see him again. And yet God blessed David and Bathsheba and gave them another son, Solomon, to rejoice in. Someone has said this, and I'm paraphrasing, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery so he would no longer be honored. Yet by being sold into slavery, God honored Joseph. Our disappointments are his appointments, says Joel Beakey. God brings us closer to himself through dark providences. Fifth, God's heart is never, ever against us. Though his hand disciplined you, his heart is toward you to mature you, to make you a fit vessel for honor. Sixth, through our dark providences and extreme difficulties, he is working all of them out for his own glory. Deuteronomy 32:36a says this, for the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. Have you ever noticed that when you're struggling with some difficult dark providence and you're trying to figure it out and it's bringing great pain to your heart and sorrow? For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone. God saves us when we can't save ourselves. To stir up our prayers and to make us more mature in our faith, in our trust, and in our believing in him and in his word. When is our relationship with God most sweet and close? When? when we're in an illness or we're in some kind of trouble or under some kind of trial, when we need him most, we're closer to him. And then seventh, the intricacies of dark providences will one day be our study throughout eternity. That's a beautiful thought. What we thought were twists and turns was his straight way for our good and his glory. Every dark providence was needed in our lives. God is ruling and God is reigning over everything. Somebody has mentioned recently even dust particles that float in the air. Remember Revelations 15.3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you, for you alone are holy. God is the only one holy. One day we'll understand everything. Every tear, every trial, God always has good causes in what he brings into our lives. His purposes are to lead to his glory and to our good. God gave Joseph a very good position as a slave, not a field slave, but a house slave. Eventually, Joseph was given complete authority over Potiphar's entire estate. Now consider with me Joseph's relationship with God 
during his time of notable success, which is our second point. Let me read verses two through six of Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then made him overseer of his house and all that he had and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he did not know what he had, what he had except for the bread which he ate. Imagine you're an unbeliever and you have 30 employees and one of your employees just sticks out. I mean, he comes in early, he stays late, he doesn't waste time, he works hard, he's always asking for more training, he always wants to help more. You can tell that he's not working for the eye of the boss, but he has some other eye upon him. And you're just a pagan business owner. What are you going to do with that worker? You're going to say, hey, come to my office, I want to talk to you. I'd like to put you in management. And that's what Potiphar did with Joseph. What was Joseph's secret? Why did he get along with everybody and do so well? He was gifted. He was intelligent. Yes. He was honest and able and a good man. Yes. He was extremely handsome and well-built. Yes. Joseph had learned the language and the Egyptian culture. Yes. But scripture tells us why he had so much success and prosperity. The Lord was with him and God prospered him. It was the presence of the Lord. Joseph was a sinner like you and I. It was the presence of the Lord. God was with him. He walked with God. He remembered the things that his father taught him about God. He knew God. He had knowledge of God and he believed and he trusted in his God. Potiphar and the others could see the favor of the Lord upon Joseph. Joseph grows in stature and becomes a leader in the house, in the house of a leader. He became a leader in the house of a leader. Potiphar was over all the bodyguards of Pharaoh. And all that time, he does not surrender to the forces of evil because why? The Lord was with him. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But with Christ, we can do all things. He is now 27 years old. For 10 years, he's learned more and more and he's grown in in the favor of Potiphar to the point now that he runs the entire estate. God was with him, spiritually with him. The brothers kept him from his earthly father but they could not separate him from his heavenly father, his Lord. God's spiritual presence was with his people and is with his people. And that presence with us makes all the difference. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We must rely upon him and commune with him. This is worth more than money can buy, the presence of the Lord. 
Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Indeed, the joy of the Lord is our strength. God is always with his people. Always. But are his people experientially walking with their God? Do we rely on him? Do we talk to him? Do we seek him first by prayer and by the word? Are we filled with delight and joy in contemplating our God? Joseph was. He trusted God wholly and completely in dark providences and in, and in times of prosperity. Next, let's consider the Lord was with Joseph in his times of fervent and repeated carnal temptations. What do we mean by carnal temptations? Fleshly, sensual, sexual temptations. Genesis 39, 6b says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and he's committed all that he has to my hand. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Imagine with me for a moment, Joseph is far, far away from his home. He's a single man, he's not married, he's 27 years old and he's surrounded by idol worshipers. He's at the prime time of his virility. He has sexual vigor and potency. He has natural tendencies God implanted in him for intimacy. He naturally wants what this woman is offering him. He is in a wicked culture where sexual promiscuity is commonplace with Egyptians. This woman was surely used to getting what she wanted. And at this very vulnerable time in his life, when he was in free reign of the entire estate, complete authority over Potiphar's estate, Potiphar trusted him. It's then that Potiphar's wife puts pressure on him and she says, lie with me. Which I understand is just two words in the Hebrew. Lie with me. He was given an invitation to sin. She waited for just the right time. Everyone was out of the house except her and Joseph. Satan loves to bring down God's choice servants. Satan keeps temptations coming over and over. But Joseph was not falling for her enticing ways. Why? Why? Everything was set up perfectly for him to sin. What is the secret to keep ourselves from sexual sins? He walked with God. God was with him. Joel Beakey is helpful here 
he identifies five ways that Joseph is a model for us when under pressure of sexual or sensual temptations. He says, first, refuse enticement immediately. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and, he, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know and, and, and you know the rest. It says in verse 10 that she spoke to Joseph day by day and that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Day after day, he, went, he underwent this, this pressure from this woman. Psalm 1 comes to mind. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. Number two, in addition to refuse enticement immediately, Beeky says, refuse excuses immediately. In verse eight, we see a reason for sin. We see an excuse. But Joseph saw a reason not to sin in verse 8. Most men in Joseph's situation would have used verse 8 as a reason to lie with her. But Joseph says, it says, he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he's committed all that he has to my hand. Most carnal men would say that is the perfect alibi right there. No one's gonna know but me and her. But for Joseph, he refuses excuses immediately instead of grabbing onto them. You're on your computer and your mom says, I'm gonna go shopping, I'll see you in about an hour. Okay, mom. No one's in the house. You've got the computer. If you're like Joseph, that's, that's something that you'll refuse immediately, that excuse. Well, nobody's here. No one's gonna know. A wicked man would say, here's my opportunity, but not Joseph. He makes no excuses for his sin. Number three, appeal to your own conscience as well as the conscience of others. Here, Beaky points out in verse nine, there's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you. And then he says this, because you are his wife. It's like Joseph is telling this, this shameless skank, you're married, you have a husband. Joseph reminds her, you are his wife. Don't you have a conscience? Number four, 
He says, call sin for what it is. Verse nine, he says, he says, not let's have some recreational fun. Not let's have a pleasurable affair. No. Joseph says, this great wickedness, a wicked thing, call sin what it is. A great wickedness is pornography. A great wickedness is self-indulgent masturbation. It's a great wickedness. How can I do this? Number five, set reality. Set the reality of the goodness of God before us. God is with me, Coram Deo. How can I sin against such a good God? We are ever in the presence of God, Coram Deo. So, so many in our nation need these lessons from the life of Joseph. Our culture, Satan, and our own enemy within, our remaining sin, puts forth this devilish pressure to look at pornography and to masturbate. Unfortunately, it has now become commonplace in our society. We must practice the presence of God. We must walk with God God with us is the answer. He created us for him, not for sin and self-indulgence. God is so good that he's provided our salvation in Jesus Christ. How can we do such wickedness? James 1, 12 through 15 says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Don't use that excuse. But each one is tempted when he or she is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Christ is our salvation. When he was on earth, he was with his father. He was constantly communing with his father. He was looking to God in prayer delighting in his God, loving his God, obeying his God. May we look to Christ the way Christ looked to his Father. Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, I've kind of been giving some practical takeaways as we've been going through, but with the time remaining, let's think about some ways that we can have a healthy relationship with our God. And I came across um, something that Piper wrote. Um, it seems like a silly little uh, acronym here, but some people, some people, these are helpful. He says, aptat. He says, whenever he gets coming to a pulpit, if he's preaching at a conference or something, he runs through this in his mind. And he says it's helpful for him. 
And he said that this is matched up with Augustinian theology as well as John Piper's book, Knowing God. But I guess it's his own cute little way of remembering. It's a simple and creative way to communicate what it means to walk with God or to keep in step with the Spirit or what happens when God is with us in an experiential way. He says, A, admit. We admit that without Christ, I can do nothing. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. That's humility. God dwells in the high and lofty throne and with a contrite and lowly heart. Admit that without Christ, I can do nothing. P, pray. Jesus said, you do not have because you do not ask. James 5, 16b says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. T, and Piper makes the point that this is the, the fulcrum. This is, everything hinges on this. Trust, trust. Trust specific promises that God has tailored and made for the situation that you're dealing with, whether it's financial situation, sexual temptation, you name it. He says, I need a specific promise to believe right now because I just want to trust him for his promises in his word. I don't want to, tr- I don't want to just trust in general, but I want to trust what he's promised, when he's promised to do something. And he says, he quoted this verse, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you. And he says, we can use that promise and others. Isaiah 55 says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So trust God, believe. Have faith in God's promises. He's a covenant keeping God. That's what kept Joseph through all of his trials. And we could have gone on to the chapter 40 and beyond. And it gets even more exciting in Joseph's life. He trusted his God. He knew his God. The God of his fathers. Then A, act. Act in obedience to God's word. Expecting God to help you. Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And then finally, T, be thankful to God. Thank God for whatever good or whatever bad comes. Give thanks always, says Ephesians 5.20. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. The fulcrum in, the, in this presence of God where everything hangs, says Piper, I think it's this point on trusting God's promises. Well, let me end with just a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones and then we'll, we'll be done. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a quote that I just saw this week on someone had posted this online and the title was Your Relationship with God. And he says this, man's happiness has never been designed to be determined by circumstances. 
And this is the fatal mistake we all tend to make, says Martin Lloyd-Jones. The happiness of a man depends on one thing, and that is his relationship with God. We cannot find happiness anywhere else. We need to get back to the soul, to the heart, and know that it's God who created our hearts for himself. He wants the affection that comes from our hearts. We were created for him. We're meant for him. We conform to him and we will never rest until, like the needle of a compass, we reach the north and there and only there we find true rest in him. Well, let's close in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what it teaches us that you desire to commune and to be near us, that you reconciled us through your son, through his person and through his work. You've brought us near that we can come to your throne of grace. Even your word says boldly, oh Father, thank you for rescuing helpless sinners like we are. Please continue to help us to commune with you, to draw near to you, to glorify you, even in the coming hour we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're dismissed. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.